Hi, everyone. This is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and this is Interview with the PD Pod. This is the September 2022 edition. And I had the opportunity today to talk to somebody who I've really looked forward to speaking to for a while. Deb Eastwood is a consultant at the Great Ormond Street Hospital, as well as at the Royal National Orthopedic Hospital at Stanmore. She's really a giant in the field and has been a huge presence uh, in the European Orthopedic Society, having uh, been president previously of the EPOS. She is a fixture at the IPOS event every year, and this is really where I first listened to her talk. Uh, We don't know each other well, but she's somebody who I've always enjoyed listening to, uh, not just because of her wonderful accent, but also because uh, I think she's really a terrific speaker. I remember her first lecture that I ever heard on open reduction, femoral shortening, and acetabuloplasty for late DDH, and I thought that she really just has has a wonderful way of uh, presenting things and and, uh, helped me understand some of that pathology early on in my career. Deb is uh, truly enjoyable to talk to. Uh, We had a great discussion. I hope you enjoy it. I look forward to seeing you along with Deb at the IPOS meeting this uh, winter, as well as at our annual meeting next spring. I've had the opportunity to spend some time looking at Nashville and the site, and I think it's going to be spectacular. So please enjoy this wide-ranging, lovely conversation with Deb Eastwood, and thank you to all of you for listening, as well as to Carter Clement and the rest of the podcast crew for help with uh, editing and producing. Thank you, and uh, see you all soon. Deborah, I'm very excited to have you here today. Uh, I've had Uni from north of the border, but we've never had anybody from across the pond or outside of the U.S., so this is a, a big privilege. I have to tell you, I have been uh, at I, a faculty member at IPOS for four or five years, and I've always enjoyed hearing you talk. And I had you on my my very short early list uh, to, to call and, and talk to for this, so I really appreciate you giving me the time today. That's my total pleasure, Nick. It's just, um, yeah, and IPOS is such a great meeting. It's always, it's always good fun, isn't it? That's so, it is. And yeah. it's always busy, so it's hard sometimes to, to yes, always connect, yes. but, uh, but I appreciate it. So I was hopeful uh, today to get a little bit of story of your background. Um, and really, I think one of the things that I'm most interested in is having practiced in the U.S. now for over a decade, I sort of have ideas to how it works, but I'd love to talk a little bit later after we talk about how you got into this role about how it is to practice in the NHS. Um, so, But maybe you could talk about sort of where you grew up. I, I think you grew up uh, not far from probably where you are now. Is that right? Uh, actually, it's pro- by American standards, it's probably close by, but I, I call it the north of England. So uh, some people would okay. say north England is very different from the southern parts of England. So I grew up there and then my dad worked for what is now um, AstraZeneca. So he traveled the world a bit and, and took the family with him. So I had a bit of a checkered upbringing, but mainly in the north of England and then um, gravitated to Birmingham, which is in the Midlands for university, and then did my sort of resident and fellowship training down in Bristol and a little bit in Toronto and a little bit in Melbourne. So what, what were you like as a kid? Very different, I think, from how I am now, as I hope you were too, Nick, because I, <laughs> yes, was, uh, true. You know, I, I uh, don't like ill people. I didn't like blood. I couldn't say boo to a goose, you know. So if you told me then that I'd be operating and speaking publicly, you, no, <laughs> not, a, not ever on my radar. And to be fair, I don't think it was on my parents' radar either. But anyway, you know, they brought me up to give everything a go. And so somewhere along the line, I've, I've ended up here. 
So, and, and how did you find that, that path into medicine? But this isn't a right answer either. I, I, um, I, my best friend at school, you know, I asked her what she was going to be. And she said, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. So I said, oh, well, I'll be one too. And so we both turned out to be doctors. But um, I think my parents thought that wasn't necessarily a very sensible thing on which to base my, my decision making. You know, and I know the kids today have to go through so many hoops, don't they? And to, and to really know what they want to do and have had a go at it and experienced it. And I did none of that. And yet it, it, it did work out fine for me through a bit of serendipity. Yeah, but there were probably other things that you thought of along the way, the astronaut, the, you know, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. sort of fell by the wayside. So even though she was, your friend was going to do this, it at least stuck with you. Yes, exactly. That's right. And I did like some of those programs on the TV. I think I was of the MASH era, you know, so I think I liked Hawkeye right. and that sort of thing. And I thought it might be fun to be a doctor. So uh, I, I'm going to ask a ton of questions today as an ignorant American, and I can tell you that I've been to Europe a number of times, but I've actually never been to England, so that's part of the problem. But also, I think it seems so foreign to those of us who go through this very sort of weird, circuitous path to medicine. I've always thought that in Europe, there's a much more efficient process to get into medicine that you sort of get along the path earlier. For those of us who are still sort of trying to figure it out, what is the path to orthopedics and how did that how did you take that path? So I I obviously I went to medical school first, so we do that straight at age 18, straight from school uh, for five years. And nowadays it would take you another ten years, eight to ten years to get through to attending or consultant level. So in my day it was a similar length of time, but a little bit different. Quite a long drawn out. I mean, we start, I suppose we start actual being a doctor a little bit earlier than, than you do. Then we spend longer learning our craft at a general level and then into orthopedics. So these days, and in my day, we did probably seven years of orthopedics uh, and a oh, year wow. fellowship. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, just for the conversion, so when I'm 18, I go to high school yeah. and I graduate college. I'm oh, sorry, I go to college. I go to, I graduate college at 22 and then I yeah. do five years of orthopedics in a year yeah. of fellowship. You do medical school for how long? Five years. Oh, and then seven years of orthopedics. Hmm. Wow. And then a year of fellowship. Okay. Wow. And so, so the, my understanding of sort of the process is that you have to figure out pretty early that you want to do medicine, is it difficult to change if you decided into your second year of med school that actually you wanted to be a, a barrister or, uh, you know, a businessman or, or whatever? Um, I think to get into what the, the popular university courses, it would be a little bit difficult. But if you've already got into medicine, you're supposed to be one of the elite guys yeah. or girls. So therefore, you would probably manage to transfer to the subject of your choice with relatively little difficulty. Okay. And, and then, so after your medical school and you decided on orthopedics, first of all, what sort of drew you to orthopedics? And then what was, was peds always sort of in line or was there something else that you were interested in, or how did that come about? Yeah, I think, I think in an early days when I was sort of doing a little bit of the general experience, I liked, I liked orthopods. I thought they were a fun crowd to be with and you fixed things, especially from the trauma side of things. So I definitely came into trauma and orthopedics via the trauma because you fix things, made people better. And, you know, it was it was fun and it was immediate. You made people better. So that's so via trauma. 
I came into orthopedics and then orthopedics was a bit horrifying when it was all physics and engineering because somehow I hadn't quite expected that, but it was, it was fine. And then I thought that I would like small things in life. So I thought I'd do hand surgery and everyone thought that was an appropriate thing for me to do. And I did love hand surgery. I did. But for various reasons, I, as a resident, I was left on my own quite a bit during that time. And I felt out of my depth all the time and I felt a bit scared. And then I went up. The next attachment was PEDS which was also small and also dealing with what nature had to give you and a really supportive boss who was there all the time and taught me lots. And so from then on, it was, you know, peds all the way. So peds all the way. Wow. Yeah. And, and now is the, I know that in, um, for example, in Switzerland, the hip group does hips on baby hips and they do total hips on 90 year olds. Is there anything similar in, in England? So I think uh, earlier on in my career, peds went the whole from cradle to grave. Then with peds becoming a subspecialty in its own right, we felt that it should stop at 16 or 18. Then we thought, well, the young adult hip should probably come in with peds maybe sometimes. So I think we are in a bit of a mess at the moment. We don't quite know what we're doing. Um, so I think that most pediatric orthopedic surgeons interested in the hip would stop short of a hip replacement. So I think that for no real reason, but that's the way I think it's going, is that you would do your hip preservation surgery, but if it really needed a hip replacement, you would send it on to an arthroplasty colleague. Understood. So, so you're not doing arthroplasty? No. No. no, gotcha. And, okay. And the guy I worked with who was is no longer either. So in the last few years, he was a great arthroplasty guy, but he's he just doesn't feel it's you know, it's interesting. He says, I only do a few and I do the complicated ones, and perhaps that's not the best model of care these days. So Yeah, I think that probably makes sense. And and there are certainly the generalists in the US who still, I think, typically in small towns, uh, still provide pretty global care. But it's mm. it's tough to be, you know, somebody who's doing uh, trigger trigger fingers and DDH and total hips and you know uh, lumbar decompressions and things like that. I know there's still a few people out there who do that, but that's sort of hard. And, and you're right. There are there will be some probably of the older generation who are still doing that, but not in what I'd call the city centre or the university hospitals. I think that's sort of died out now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, after uh, residency, and you sort of decided on pediatrics, you did something that seems to be a lot more common in Europe and and maybe a little bit out, just generally outside the U.S., which is you went to Toronto, but also to Melbourne. Yeah. which are very different areas of the world. Um, and I'm curious, A, sort of how the path to fellowship occurred and then, and then why you chose that, that path. Yeah. So you have to remember I'm ancient, Nick. And so uh, at the time I was doing fellow, fellowships weren't the done thing. Uh, and so I think they were suggesting that I could go and do a year of revision hip to finish off my training. And so I said, well, I think I'd like to try and arrange my own fellowship. So I, in fact, I did arrange my own and limb reconstruction work was just taking off. And there was a big base in Sheffield in the north of England. So I went there for a few weeks. Then a friend of mine in Australia was doing a fellowship in Toronto. So I sort of tagged on to him for a few, for a few weeks. And then I went to Melbourne as uh, what for a more formal fellowship. So I gotcha. I for about just over a year, six months in Melbourne and then two, three months slots, which I sort of arranged myself and um, didn't get paid for, but learned a lot. So 
I mean, it's a spectacular education to, yeah. to cram all that into a year. Yeah, it was, it was great fun. And at the time, it suited me. And, and as you say, you got to look at the way different units, different countries, different healthcare systems worked and tried to pick out things that you wanted to bring back to your practice and other things which you thought, yeah, I'll leave those behind. I don't like that way of doing things. But it was great. It was really good fun. Can you talk a little bit about the mentors that helped bring you along that process? Like you said, it was it was it was a while back, and maybe there wasn't a lot of previous examples of people who had, you know, sort of done that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Did you have people who really mentored you in that process? So I had I had good mentors who pushed me along the Peds Ortho path as a resident. Really, a guy no one will have heard of called Nigel Dwyer, and another one, Peter Witherow, both of whom were were really good doctors, you know, and that's why I I admired them so much. They were good doctors and they impressed upon me that it was important to be a good doctor first and then you could be a surgeon and a peds ortho surgeon. But if you weren't a good doctor, that wasn't worth it. And I, I, you know, okay, I can't be a doctor in everything, but I I remember those advice, but but they hadn't done much traveling, but they had done visiting. So I just, I think I met, well, I know I'd met uh, Malcolm Menelaws, and then a guy from France who'd done a lot on Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So they were in a course in England, which I happened to get onto the course, even though it was for you know attendings only. So I think they misread my application form. So they, <laughs> and I was I was so out of my depth. But I met these guys, and Mercer Rang was there from Toronto days. Oh, wow. So I met these guys in a very odd environment and they were all extremely nice to me and, you know, said, well, you should come traveling, you should come visit. So I think Mercer Rang was my first sort of mentor in Toronto and uh, Malcolm Menelaws and Bill Cole were great mentors in Melbourne as well. That's terrific. I think the other thing that I've noticed, I mean, you've been the president of EPOS and EPOS is, is very big. I don't know sort of what your path was into academics within Europe, because for me, again, POSNA is so familiar, but EPOS, other than the time that I was overseas, sort of, were you one of the people who sort of helped bring that along? And, and how did that how did that occur? I, I, I'd like to think I was part of the group that modernized EPOS a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you know, like a lot of things in my career, it was a bit serendipitous. EPOS is funny old thing. You know, you just, at one stage, there were no, the committee meetings were infrequent. It was who you knew and who you met. And somewhere along the line, I got onto their reading committee. And then, then I got approached to be on their executive board. And I remember this phone call and I didn't know what it was about. And in the, put the phone down. And then an English guy rang me back a few minutes later. He said, I, he said, I hear you've just turned down going on the EPOS board. I said, I don't think so, did I? I said, well, that's what they thought. <laughs> so um, it was a bit serendipitous. So, yeah, so I, I went into the EPOS sort of, if you like, presidential line, definitely by serendipity and definitely without really realizing what I was up to. But I realized that when I was in it, I thought there was a lot to do to try and streamline the process and give it some direction. So Muharam Yazizi, who I'm sure you you know, um, he was just ahead of me in the presidential line. So we had a great fun trying to, you know, get our financial structures and our governance structures and everything sorted out. And um, I think it worked quite well for a few years. And then like Europe often does, it's sort of slightly separated. And now it might be coming coalescing again. I was going to ask about that. I mean, you know, we struggle with a single monetary system, which you guys sort of have. Uh, but, you know, 
it's still difficult to get people in different areas of the country. And I mean, how do you take all of Europe and combine it into one group and make a lot of the processes that may work in the UK, but might not work in a totally different healthcare system sort of function and, and, and bring along orthopedic education in that environment? It is difficult because every country has its own POSNA or British society. And then you're trying to ask people to attend a, a European meeting as well. So it has been virtually impossible to get good multinational research studies going because the rules are just so different for each country. And we haven't managed to find a way of going, if you like, through Brussels, through European head command to get a, a Europe-wide study. So our European EPOS research is still quite anecdotal case-based case series rather than true research, which is a, is a real shame. The education's doing better. You know, we've managed to sort of streamline uh, people or find a, a big group of faculty who are interested in teaching. And I think we've learned a lot from the IPOS courses. So we have a very nice core curriculum course or basic advanced and trauma course. Um, we do do a, a separate course for under-resourced countries. So that's all working well now. And the governance structures around the cash and the running of the meeting. And I think the standard of our meeting has increased significantly over recent years. But the research is lagging behind, I think. How about, so I, I, one of the things that I think POSNA really helps a lot with is the networking of fellows looking for jobs. Um, yep. it, and it is interesting. For example, you know, our fellows last year at, at Children's in Atlanta wanted more or less to be in certain areas of the country. So there is some of that. But from a EPOS standpoint, you know, would a, a somebody who's training under you really be that interested in taking a job in Prague? It, right. So so how does that work? How how does yeah. how so, does the networking work? Very disappointingly, British trainees and would be fellows don't rate going to Europe. I think it's partly because they don't understand the system there and they're they're put off by the fact they don't speak the right language. So they will do short traveling fellowships of two to six weeks, you know, AO fellowships or orthopediatric fellowships. But most people aren't brave enough to work over there. Even though I think some of the centers, if you, you know, a lot of the patients do speak English, a lot of the places, for example, in Prague would be very happy to have an interpreter, you know, working with you. So I think you could still learn a lot, but it's just, it goes into the too hard category. Understood. We, we, in the UK, we have a lot of the Western European people come over for fellowships. So uh, certainly from where a lot come from uh, the Netherlands, Belgium uh, and Spain. Uh, Those are our top, top three, Italy uh, quite often. So those are our top four countries that are very happy to come to the UK Pre-Brexit, that was really easy. Uh, Post-Brexit, it's not so easy for us to recruit them or for them to to get the job. So that's a shame. I can only imagine, yeah. Now, as we mentioned, you've been faculty on IPOS and you've been involved with with POSNET. And I've, I've been excited because the last couple of years at IPOS in particular, I feel like there is a larger OUS contingent of educators, which is just great. And it's been really nice to see different ways to manage conditions, uh, you know, really in, in different environments. But I feel as though you were one of sort of the earlier people, at least in my career, who I remember from OUS coming over. How important or, or what role has has the relationship with POSNA and IPOS played for you? 
hugely important, you know, and I would, um, I probably didn't mention the most important mentor really was Tony Catterall. And so at Posner meetings, he was one of these guys who would always make sure I was introduced to the group and, you know, would always uh, make sure I wasn't feeling lost at the cocktail party or at the coffee things. And I always liked the fact that Posner was different from EPOS. So EPOS was chaotic. The science was odd, but quite interesting sometimes. But, you know, sometimes in the early days would not have passed our research ethics standards, but had some interesting results nevertheless. And Posner was quite the opposite. So I quite liked sitting, you know, as a Brit halfway between Europe and the States. So I loved that, the fact that you were different And of course, those differences have become less, I think, over my career time. And then I'd heard about this IPOS meeting and heard that it was only for the really good educationalists. And then suddenly I found myself being invited. Oh, okay. So I was scared to death the first time I went and, of course, realized I was amongst friends and um, it, it was fine. And I still think it's one of the best, if not the best, educational meeting I go to. I think it's just such a great mix of really enthusiastic faculty, really enthusiastic delegates, a lot of face-to-face, a lot of cross-fertilization between faculty and residents. And I learn so much every time. It's uh, it's a great meeting. It really is. It's uh, I, you know I've had a couple of residents who thought they were going into peds and wanted to see, so they went down to the meeting and you know they're like you know well I decided on joints, but that's the best thing I've ever seen. Yeah. You know that's yeah. it's uh, it really is spectacular. Hopefully those who listen to this podcast have, have been there, but if not, they like, should. Either they of us should. could yeah could speak strongly more strongly for it. Um, so you know, I, uh, speaking of IPOS, and I've I've heard I think predominantly your talks on DDH and Clubfeed, both of which I know are sort of mm. dear to your heart. Looking through at least your research profile and, and what I can find online, I always joke that you know it's difficult interviewing orthopedists because we don't have these online profiles like celebrities might if they're doing oh, yeah. podcasts. But what other where are your other passions these days in, in within the field? So it's tricky, isn't it? Because I did go into peds because I liked being a generalist. And DDH and Clubfoot, as I often say at the beginning of my talks, were the the crux of what it was all about, really. And and we've made a sea change with Clubfeet in my career time with the Ponsetti technique. And and DDH was still missing the cases which we should pick up, which is a real tragedy, I think. Through my career, I've been given a lot more of the cerebral palsy work to do. So I don't, I truly don't consider myself expert on that. But I do do a lot of cerebral palsy because it was a bit unpopular for a while. And then um, I've got a sort of niche interests in the mucopolysaccharidosis and some other metabolic bone diseases, and then even more niche in some of the vascular malformations. So those are sort of two stupidly niche areas that I juggle and then a lot of cerebral palsy. And then, yes, you're right, a bit of everything, really. But no spine, right? No, no. I, yeah, okay. So at the start of my career, people did do spine and limb. Uh, and I did do some did some adult spine for a very, very short while. Oh, you, know, you are brave. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm not getting caught. Oh. So I, for a very short time, less than a year, you know, I would do acute discs and, and that was about it, you know, some lumbar root injection, only because I'd done a lot in my training, Nick. And um, I did a general job first before I became a real specialist pediatric person. So, yeah, I thought I could do them. And I, I think I did a good job. And I'm really glad I stopped when I did because it was going to be pride comes before a fall. You know? <laughs> right, right. 
Um, so I, I'm curious, again, I'm a, a, like I said, a lot of questions as the ignorant American, but can you give us a little bit, of the, the listener and myself, a little sense for generally how care is delivered within the, the NHS, in particular, how that impacts kids? You know, we have our own sort of uh, Medicaid system that is supposed to be a catch-all, but there are obviously a lot of healthcare discrepancies that occur because of that. How does that occur in the, in the UK? So the NHS is available to all and free at the point of access. So any child in the UK, there is no problem. They will get treatment. They just need to get to their family doctor, their general practitioner who will refer them into me. And any child can be referred to to see me, even though I work at a supposedly you know, very specialist centre of excellence. To be fair, if it's just for flexible flat feet in a five-year-old, I might refuse the referral and pass it on somewhere else. But any child can come and see me. I can do anything I would like to that child and not require prior approval. Of course, there are governance issues in the hospital and I can't just pluck an implant out of nowhere and have a go. But within reason, I can, you know, then treat any child in any way I want at any expense. That sounds a bit cavalier and it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be that it's a system which trusts me to be doing the best I can for a patient. And if I'm doing something a bit left field, then I will have run it past our, you know, our our department and anyone else I need to run it by. But I can do anything. And I look after children only till the age of 18. But at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital, because that's an adult hospital as well, No one tells me off if I treat my grown-up children, you know, so I take them through till 2021 or whenever I think they're grown up enough to leave home is how I put it. And and but there's still a large private system as well in the UK, correct? There's a large private sector in London, maybe, Mm -hmm. uh, and in a few of the other big cities. But for children's work, the vast, vast majority is done on the NHS. Okay. And and now, one of the things, again, you mentioned CP is that transition to care, which we are yeah. terrible at in the US. Um, is it any better in the UK? I'd love to say it was. I'd love to say yeah. it's perfection, but it isn't. No. So our transition processes are good for everything but cerebral palsy. We're good with the metabolic bone conditions. We're good with knowing where to put our DDHs if, they're, if they've still got problems. But cerebral palsy, head injuries, the young patient with a stroke or something, the services for the young adult with disability are poor. Yeah. We are in the world of spinal injuries. There's a a really dynamic group growing up, getting larger and more active called the rehabilitation physicians. And they are beginning to take on the multiple sclerosis patients are beginning to take on the head injured patients. And they are beginning to say, yes, will take on the cerebral palsy patients as well from a physician overseeing point of view, but not from a, a surgery point of view. I gotcha. Yeah, I, I wish somebody would figure this out because uh, certainly in, in the U.S. it's it's a, a real nightmare and um, I've yet to hear a, a really good process for it. Maybe, maybe Melbourne's figured that out because they do such a good job with all of that. Mm-hmm. What would you say are the biggest challenges that you face in caring for somebody within your national health care system? I can list off a million within, yeah. you know, within the Medicaid system, but, but what are the biggest challenges that you face? I think that's certainly true in this post-pandemic world is just the pressure of, of work. So 
if someone suggests that there's a DDH out there, I can see them next week and I can operate on them, you know, whenever I choose because I am in charge and I can make that happen. But the the overall wait to see me is well over six months at the moment. And to wait for an operation might be the best part of nine months. But, you know, that's often patients who don't have to be operated on now, whose family aren't desperate. So it's not quite, the waiting list is not quite as bad as it can be made to seem, but it, it is tricky from time to time. Yeah, I remember early on, I, I do a fair amount of spine in my practice, and I remember early on being at a committee with um, a couple of surgeons from London, and they said, oh, well, we do you know, this number of patients a year with an anterior uh, release. And I thought, wow. And they said, well, the problem is that we see them at 50 degrees, but by the time they can be operated on, it's 90 or 100 degrees. So that's why we do so many more anterior releases. And I was, I was a little bit amazed at that. But, but I am, it is interesting to hear that, you know, if, like, like you said, if somebody calls you and said, I have a child who has a dislocated hip, you can get them in and, and get them taken care of in yeah. an efficient manner. And so I, I'm always disappointed when people say that they've got kids on their waiting list who are deteriorating that much, because I've certainly got patients who are coming to harm in that they're waiting. But I would like to think that there aren't many whose disease process, you know, the contractures may be getting a bit worse, but I, I like to think that I'm in control and I wouldn't be letting a scoliosis curve progress too much whilst they were on my and waiting list. Understood. Understood. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, the the waiting list is is true here as well. It, although sometimes it's not quite as well known, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, it it does happen that people will come in and say, you know, it took us six months to get in to see you, and I'm going, I had an appointment yesterday, but it's just you know, it's the inefficiencies in our systems. Yeah. yeah. So I I wanted to uh, pick your brain on a couple of just sort of your favorite areas, my favorite areas. So I've 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 shared on the podcast before that I love hips and I love uh, feet. I've I've mm. truly I think still a general orthopedist at heart. Although a lot of my practice has has sort of migrated towards spine. But the first time I ever heard you talk was on DDH, and it was a talk on sort of the the late hip, the open reduction, femoral shortening with uh, with some sort of acetabular osteotomy. And I'm, I'm struck because when I first started my practice, I had this idea that all of a sudden I was going to figure out something that apparently was very hard to figure out, which is uh, how to avoid AVN um, in, in this operation. And I feel as though, as probably most of us do, this is as pure a pediatric orthopedic procedure as there is that you know, we have a lot of experience with it in general. Obviously, it's it's not mm -hmm. quite as common as as other conditions, and less common now than it probably was before screening. And yet, we really haven't made giant strides in figuring out how to manage vascular challenges with this. And mm -hmm. you've done a lot of research in DDH. You've spoken a lot on DDH. I'm just curious, with the with the benefit of time and experience, what your thoughts are on that now. Are, are we any closer? What where are the biggest challenges? You're absolutely right. I just don't think we fully understand the pathology behind, you know, what causes the AVN. Is it that I'm clumsy during the operation? Is it, do some cases, are they inbuilt and programmed to, to get AVN more easily? So I, I just don't think we know enough about the pathology. And we've not collected the right data at the right time points we, or had an understanding of what we're dealing with. So I just think that you know, in my career time, the National Joint Registry for Hip Replacements has, you know, got 20-year data or more. And yet we have not collected 
data on our open reductions, you know, so that we don't really know nationally in the UK what our AVN rate is, what our redislocation rate is. And I'm not saying this is answering the question you asked me, but I think that if we had more data collecting the same sort of bits of information each time and with the pre-op x-rays, the x-rays, you know, we might be able to to look at them and get a better understanding. I know that when Tony Catrell designed his Perthes classification system, which is now unpopular, but for which it shouldn't be, but he had hundreds of x-rays spread out in front of him, you know, and studied them all sequentially to try and work out which cases were doing this. And that's maybe not feasible, you know, and he can't have done it for hundreds of cases, but he did it for enough to get a feel for what was happening. And it just seems a shame that we haven't got our heads around that sort of data collection. And and certainly, I don't think we use advanced imaging as much as we perhaps could. I don't use it, but maybe, maybe we should. And I still don't even know whether we should be operating, if we're operating, um, doing an open reduction, whether we should do it as early as we can. Or, you know, some papers say we should just leave them until they're two and a half, three, which seems really wrong to me. So we we haven't even got that sorted out yet. And that's... Yeah, I think Pablo's Pablo's thrown a wrench in that because I know he's a big advocate for late uh, late treatment. So um, it's it's just it's fascinating to me. I think that there's a lot of ways to sort of make this make this work, and yet we all sort of end up roughly in the same area. I think, and and yeah. I, I've just sort of hoped over. I, I certainly hope over my career that there'll be a little bit better handle on that. But it's interesting, one of the things that you mentioned, and I remember being a fellow at Texas Scottish Rite and Tony Herring talking about when they had the Perthes study group and having the x-rays all over the room and they actually had George Thompson. They they brought George Thompson out to try to agree on the Thompson classification. And you know, there was this whole discrepancy about, you know, what was uh, what was classified as what. But one of the things that struck me was just that he was able to do that, that he was able to bring somebody out, that the whole group got together, that they all sat there and looked at a bunch of x-rays. And the, the, the story about Tony Catterall is also fascinating. And I think in a way, one of the limitations that we have right now with the pressure of work, with the pressure of so much imaging, is the process of doing that is, is yeah. incredibly painstaking and, and time-consuming. Um, and I don't know if you feel that any more now than you did sort of earlier in your career. Yeah, sort of having our electronic patient record, you think it'd be easier to scroll through the x-rays. But of course, for a start off, half of them aren't on the system because they got lost, you know, in in the process. But uh, when I worked sort of just beside Tony Catrell, at the end of every clinic, he would be there, not every case, but he would teach on most of the cases he'd seen in clinic. And we had all the x-rays out to really learn you know, why he'd sat and he'd waited and he'd waited and he'd waited. And then the kid got better. And he'd say, would you have operated? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Or absolutely not. But so I think we we have lost the time it takes to really think through these cases and see what the learning is from each of these cases. Because every case, almost every case has a learning point. It's just a matter of being brave enough or having the time enough to, to see it. Yeah, absolutely. I think both of those are are big pressures that we face. Um, Let me talk about club feet because I, over the past month, have surgically operated on, I think, four or five club feet. And I had Vince Mosca on uh, the podcast a few months ago, and I sort of uh, talked to him about this as well. And I don't know a good uh, solution. So I feel very competent with uh, the Ponsetti technique, as I think most people do, which makes it so that the only club feet I ever take care of are like the thrice revised 
you know, complete scar ball. And it's interesting now that I have fellows, um, not that now that I have fellows, but it's interesting sort of taking fellows who never see a primary club foot uh, surgery, which is good. Mm. And I, and my first day with Neil Green as a medical student, we did four club feet. Mm. It was just back to back to back. And then this was 2006 or seven. And they all, you know, that was just what we did in a day. And yeah. now I would never do that. Um, I mean, I did four my entire fellowship year, but how do you, how do you train uh, how to do a good primary posterior media release? Because some will need it. Um, mm. I think, you know, the ones that I, that I take care of, I think, um, were either treated well and then relapsed or maybe a little bit undertreated. And then it's just so much harder to get them back. Mm. Mm. So I, I think it's very difficult. So I sort of live in hopes that I occasionally have, um, a failed Ponsetti, but that hasn't had any other surgery, you know, and I sort of rope everyone in and say, look, you've got to take notes. You've got to see this. Uh, have I videoed myself operating? No, of course I haven't. But those are really important teaching cases for those people who aren't going to see a post-remedial release. And I suppose it's the spina bifida kids that I often teach them on. Uh, the arthrogripotics are a bit too stiff for my liking. You know, I can't get them to see how it might work. But I think it's like everything. You've got to be able to do, I feel, you've got to be able to have some idea of the virgin club foot for operation, not like the, the hip, because it's still seems wrong to me to think that you're an expert on revisions when you've never really operated on the first time round because you don't understand the nuances uh, of what, what you're looking for. And of course, when they really are two or three times down the line, I mean, it's, it's not a pleasant procedure and I, you can't do it very logically because there's no logic left. Yeah, so, there's no logic left. Yeah. yeah. So I think the spina bifida are certainly here because our physios lead and run our Ponseti service. And I'm finally realizing that I've perhaps given them a bit too much slack uh, and they keep casting and recasting and that maybe some of these kids should, they deserve an operation. You know, some of them, their their goals in life are not that high. You know, they're not going to run marathons. So nor do they want to be in plaster, keep being recast and boots and bars and trying this and trying that. When I think a, a decent operation could get them plantigrade and then we'd have to keep them plantigrade. So I think I'm trying to persuade the Ponsetti service to recognize the foot that's not winning and accept that it's not winning with Ponsetti and that surgery is not a dirty word, that surgery will should be able to get this, this right. So I'm trying to do some of the spina bifida feet a little earlier than, than I have done over the last few years. So I that. love that. Feet that aren't winning. I, I, I completely agree. And, and, and your point about not being able to do a primary club foot uh, being a, a, a limitation. I mean, I'll, I'll admit, you know, I take care of a lot of club feet. I did four club foot, uh, posterior meter releases as a fellow hmm. at, at, you know, a large center in, in the U S and I can probably count on two hands, the number of primary club foot releases, certainly in an, in an idiopathic that I've done in 12 yeah. years of practice. Um, and so, but I, but I take care of a lot of club feet. And so all the ones I do end up being these revisions and my partner, who is uh, a sort of contemporary view, I think is very talented at club feet. And we do about the same number, but he just has so much more experience in the mm. idiopathic mm. realm because he mm. was around before Ponsetti. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's something that is going to continue to hamper future generations because, you know, I'm, I've been in practice 12 years, but our fellows now yeah. are going to see even fewer yeah. than that, you know, and I did them at least as a resident. So uh, it's, it's just sort of a, it's a interesting dilemma and I'm super, 
excited that we've gotten as far as we've gotten in the treatment of club feet, but, uh, but that, that procedure is still out there. And I like the idea of doing it in neuromuscular feet. Yeah. And I certainly try and teach some of the principles, you know, I, my phrase is similar, but different. So if you, if I've got a nasty club foot or a neuro, um, a shock, a married tooth, hereditary sensory motor neuropathy foot, I mean, I might use a Cincinnati incision, but I, I will just talk saying this is the sort of thing I'd find in, in a club foot if I was doing it. This is the sort of thing. So I just try and teach them the steps from a different pathology and try and sort of make it link into the, to the club foot. And the bright guys and girls see what I'm trying to do. And some of the others who aren't so interested, you can see that they, they can't, can't translate to what I'm saying to what I'm doing or vice versa. So... Yeah. The eyes glaze over a little yeah, yeah. bit. So yeah. I think they're probably destined for hip arthroplasty. You never know. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so actually, interesting. So uh, another question on hip, but, but more in the CP world. And I'm, I'm curious about this. So I, I trained under Lori Carroll, um, and she, I think, was one of the people who really made me question at times the need for certain children to get reconstruction of neuromuscularly dislocated hips. And I think that as I've gotten more and more into my practice and done a, a lot, honestly, it's a, it's a pretty big part of my practice, neuromuscular hip reconstructions, I found more and more that there's some kids who probably I shouldn't have done it on for the first part. Typically, it's just the protoplasm or the family or whatever. Sometimes it's the anatomy. But um, I'm curious within the NHS, within your own practice, um, how is sort of the reconstruction of the neuromuscular hip viewed? Is it more nihilistic? Is it more surgically aggressive? And then what about the late dislocator in terms of resection versus maybe an arthroplasty versus what have you? Mm -hmm. I think I was too conservative with the neuromuscular hip for quite a bit of my career, perhaps because I didn't feel I was confident or competent enough in that sort of a, a hip. So I was a bit reluctant to do it. And I did make the mistake, and it was a mistake. I sort of put the fours, GMFCS fours and fives together and felt that I needed to question why I was operating on them. So now I separate those out, you know, and I was maybe a bit slow to do that. But the GMFCS fives, I think quite a lot of them do not deserve or do not need hip reconstruction, not as a given, not just because the x-ray, you know, has passed a migration percentage and, you know, we've got the CPIPs study, the CPIPs guidelines, and they used to say to the parents, you know, it's hip red, red, red. That means you have to have an operation. So we have changed that to say it's hip red, red, red. You must have an orthopedic opinion about an operation, but you don't have to have, you know, that's my decision, not the blessed CPIP forms. Yeah. So um, I'm probably with Laurie. Well, I am with Laurie. I, I'm in with Laurie in a lot of respects. But I, I just, I think you're treating a patient, aren't you? you uh, of which you should be informed by the evidence and by the X-rays and by the best quality research work that's out there. Which, of course, is not totally high quality for that group of patients. And then I think it's very dependent on the family as well. You know, the family unit. Some families have one way of coping with their child. Others have a different way. And so I'm, I am still quite conservative. Some families gravitate towards me because they've heard that I'm quite conservative. Nationally, we're riding the crest of the aggressive wave. Um, and I'm personally, I hope that it might just calm down a little bit. But NHS-wise, we can operate on every hip that we want to. But in certain areas, so in East, uh, in the um, 
lower socioeconomic area of London, the physios in the community, you know, the rehab for the patients, it's not good. So one of my colleagues there is beginning to feel very careful about what she operates on because the backup is not there. And she says that if the backup isn't there and the families aren't engaging in rehab or splint wear, then really you're better off not doing the operation and, and supporting the family in another way, but not adding in the, you know, the insult to the injury already. So I think we, well, that's where it goes back to being what I was taught to be, which or wanted to be, was, which was a good doctor first and then be able to pick the right surgery to do it at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. It's that de- decision's more important than the incision a yeah, lot of I'll times. Like- uh, yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, it's a good. I I think I learned that from Jack Flynn. Uh, You you mentioned research, and I'm another thing. I'm sort of curious is how research within your center is carried out. Where the funding comes from? Is it is it supported through the hospital or national? Because I know you have a big research interest. I mean, you've got a lot of publications. Yes, but uh, you know, it's a real scattergun approach. You know, Nick, and um, is it serendipity on that? No, it's. Certainly, if you have a question or the registrar has a question, then I was taught by another sort of mentor. It was on calcaneal fracture work. I asked him a question. I was trying to impress him. So I asked him a question and he said, well, why don't you go find out? So this was in the day where you had to go in the library, you know, so I flitted through it all and came back the next morning and he he wasn't interested. I said, no, 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 Roger, you asked me to find out and I've tried. And so he said, no, Deborah, I meant research. I meant go find out. Let's do some research, you know. And I thought, oh, I see. No one knows the answer to that question. We've got to find out. So, and that was a real light bulb moment that, you know, there were questions that you could ask, little ones, big ones, that you might need to find the answer to. So, so most of my research work has been unfunded, but the NHS does support not by giving me cash in hand, but will give me maybe a bit of time. You know, I have access to the records. We have the ethics process, uh, which can be quite, can be quite easy to go through. Whatever the interesting question is, we try and answer that. So we've tried to join in with national studies. Uh, Dan Perry, a paediatric orthopod from Liverpool, has been instrumental in getting the UK to work together and to collect the same sort of data. But that's only been in the last few years. Prior to that, we just tried to ask a question, find a way of answering it from the information that we had uh, in our local setting. So that's why little question here, a little question there. And hopefully some progress, you know, on, on some of the bigger topics, ask a question, answer it, ask the next one on the next one. But it's not been as as impressive as some of your coordinated research groups in the States. So we're lagging behind the States, I think. But you do have an interest and you've done some work in sort of the genetics and, yep. and more basic science. And is that is that funded as well through NHS or just through the hospital? So most of that I've, I've tagged on to groups. You know, I answer emails on the whole quite avidly. And, you know, if someone asks a question, I'll say, oh, yes, let's see if I can help. Or, yes, we can try and do that. So usually I've tagged on to groups where they've already got funding, but they need the clinical cases. So I suppose I've, yeah, I've been a good collaborator and I actively look for areas in which I can help collaborate. You know, if they need a bit of tissue from the operating room, that's easy in my, you know, from my point, I know you need consent and everything, but on the whole, delivering a bit of tissue to the lab because the basic scientists need and want it, that's, that's easy. So I'm very happy 
to collaborate on those sorts of studies. So some of that is hospital funded at Great Ormond Street. They do have a lot of research funding that comes in, but most of it comes up through the NHS research arms. Understood. Yeah. Well, it, but I think that's a, it's a great point because I get asked a lot by fellows and residents who graduate and go to maybe a smaller program and are at you know a major center. Mm-hmm. How do I how do I become relevant in research? And I think that being a good collaborator first and foremost is important because really the first time that I had to collaborate on research was not on my patients. I've been there for I've been here for you know six months. But it was a collaborator with my partners and making sure that they got engaged in trying to find studies on their patients that were relevant to the questions that I wanted to, a- to answer. And I think that that's as important as, as, as anything else. So I, I wholeheartedly support sort of what you're, what you're alluding to. And our, up until uh, maybe, I don't know, five years ago, our residents used to, it was expected that they would be first author on one or two papers during their residency. And that became, I don't know, seemed to be too hard work or whatever, rightly or wrongly. And so then it changed to saying, if we're running national studies, then if you recruit five patients to a study, that's the same thing. So suddenly we had residents everywhere who thought it was a darn sight easier to recruit five patients to a a study uh, than it was to write a paper. And I think it's right because a lot of people aren't going to be true academics, but if they are interested uh, in collecting the data, which can go into a national data set and which will inform their practice in five years' time or three years' time, then I think that's just as valuable as actually having you know, written a paper from start to finish. So I think that's been quite revolutionary in the UK to get our residents interested and the collaborative studies that we've done on perthase and epiphysis, which is really only data collection. But as our NIHR said, when we, we put the study proposal in, They said, but you don't know what the background problem is. You don't know what the background incidence is. I think they were wrong. I think we did know that. But we've now got all the data said, right, yeah, we've got we've shown that everyone can work together in the UK. I think about 95 percent of the NHS hospitals collected data on perthes and and slips. So now we can prove that we can work together. We know what the basic demographics are. We know what people are tending to do treatment wise. So now. Yeah, now we need the money. Now you need to give us the money to do what we want to yeah, do. Exactly. Which is a proper study. <laughs> like does surgery That's work great. in birthdays or not, you know? Um, so yes. So it's taken a while to get the NIHR research funding bodies on board, but I think they are on board now and they understand that pediatric orthopedics is a good area for them to, to throw some money at, really. I think worth supporting, could, yeah. It is. I think we to some basic questions, I think we could find out some answers moderately quickly and moderately easily now that we've proven that we can work together. Yeah, that's great. So I I wanted to to transition a little bit. So you had alluded earlier that you've been, you've been doing this for a little while and I'm curious, I'm not asking you to sort of call the end, but I'm curious uh, if you're at a stage where you're starting to think about sort of transitioning to next career or, or is this something that you plan on doing for a lot longer? Uh, no, no, because I, I am close to retirement age, you know, and, and I never, ever thought that I'd say that. But, you know, it, it is a fact of life. And probably what's more is that it doesn't frighten me as much as it did a few years ago. So not that I'm rushing into it, but, you know, it is increasingly fun to me to help my junior colleagues do stuff. It is increasingly fun to take a step back from the clinical work and try and coordinate the research work, whereas before I tried to juggle everything. 
So now, now if they sort of did suggest I could drop a clinic and do some research, you know, I, I used to think that would horrify me, but actually I think it probably wouldn't horrify me at the moment. So, yeah, so I, I've got a political job to do for the British Orthopaedic Association this next year or two. And my guess is that I'll be winding down clinically during that time and then sort of picking up research and not picking up the clinical stuff again. I got you. Now, do, have you thought about sort of what you're going to miss most about that transition? Is it going to be the patients? Is it going to be sort of the collaborations? Is it going to be just being in the operating room? I think it will be hugely difficult to think that you're not going to operate again. So a good friend of mine, we'd laughed and joked, said, you know, I can't see me ever. So then she positioned a patient on the operating table and did her rotator cuff in and so was then off for a while. And then, you know, she said, I suddenly realized that she'd got a political job to do as well. So she sort of said, you know what, I think I've done my last operation without knowing it. I just, it, and that probably suits me, you know, I'll, so I think I'll miss the actual operating. Uh, of course, I'll miss the patients, but I think I'll miss the camaraderie and the meeting with colleagues and discussing stuff and trying to answer questions. I think that's what I'll miss. So that's what I'm hoping by a bit of research work or teaching that I'd be able to, to carry on. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you I, I think you you uh, struck a chord with me because operating is really the only thing that we do that nobody else does. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can be a general practitioner and do research. You can do I mean, you can see kids in, in really any field within pediatrics and not operate on them. But surgeons have that one thing that they do different. And I think it is unique and it's hard to get back. So so I can imagine that being a hard thing to let go of. But, you know, even with the Ponsetti technique, just to do that tenotomy, yes. instantly the foot has changed, you know, and you think, hey, that was me. I just did that. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I can't even fix stuff around my house that quickly, you know, and it, 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 it is great. Um, well, that's good. Now, do you have, uh, and I mean, I know this is sort of a big question, but do you have, looking back at, at your career, advice that you would have for younger or, or a mid-career surgeon like me, things that you wish you'd done a little bit differently? So in the UK career structure, although I have done a lot of research, I never did a higher research degree, which is what makes a true academic in this country. And I could have done one. I just didn't think it was that important. You know, I had enough bits of research, but I never thought it was important to really tick the research credential box. So for UK residents and fellows, I've changed my tune and I say, look, if you are at all interested in that and you've done a body of work, just do that extra mile, just do that extra tick in the box and get your, we call it an MD or a, um, a, an MSc or so, just to get a higher degree and tick that box because it does give you a lot more street cred in our system for, for research grants and for having your career taken more seriously. So mine, I'm taken seriously because I've done such a lot over a long period of time, you know, and they, so that's that one bit of advice. Um, sorry, what was your question again, Nick? What, Just what, what, on, on advice for younger or mid-career surgeons. That was a great one. I think that's yeah. a, that's well, a I terrific think, one. Um, I would say stay a bit general if you can. Because I think I've learned such a lot by being a bit general, by knowing that my hip bone and my knee bone are connected, you know, and the back's not far away. And that if you're going to be a good doctor, when the patient asks you about their shoulder or something, you should be able to say something of common sense. So I think the ability to sort of 
just stay a bit general. Everyone rushes. You want to be a sub, 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 sub specialist. Um, and I think the answer is to be not, not in such a rush to get there. I know it takes, it's difficult. You've got a lot of skills to learn, you know, a lot of different techniques to learn. But I just think there's no need to get there so quickly and become so narrow in your, in your specialty. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more. I think especially early on in your career, there's so much overlap between different areas. Um, and I feel as though I'm a better spine surgeon because I know the hip so well and I understand the pelvis. And honestly, I'm a better hip surgeon because I know not to leave my sacral or iliac screws quite as long in a patient who may need a PAO. Um, yeah. And those are things I think that get, that get uh, glossed over or looking at I mean, I'm not a sports guy, but I know lower extremity alignment and I do a fair number of, of uh, distal femoral osteotomies and guided growth because those are problems that see me in clinic and my AIS kids who happen to have knock knees or something like that. So I, I really think it's important, even if you do go down that road, I, I completely agree. It's important to have some level of general knowledge about PEDS. And I really hope that PEDS never goes, at least in the U.S. and certainly in, uh, you know overseas as well, to a fellowship that is so subspecialized that our trainees really don't get to see mm. that. Mm. I, I think that being a, a, just a PEDS spine fellow and never doing PEDS would be a, a disservice to children. Because I got very worried with the sort of the limb reconstruction brigade who sort of for a while thought the frame would cure absolutely everything you know and that's a bit like surgery for the gmfcs5 hip i'm not sure a frame is the right thing for everyone but they've, they've they've sort of come back a bit from that but for a while in the uk they'd have be frame surgeons who really didn't know how to do an osteotomy with a plate fixation because they weren't you know and they said it's a bad operation and i thought well it's only because you've not done enough of it to know how to make it right but if you apply all your limb reconstruction principles properly to doing a closing wedge osteotomy, you will not translate it too much. They'll be up and weight bearing and they won't have the pin sites and they may be very much happier. Yeah. Certainly in the UK, limb reconstruction went way too specialized and now are back on the straight and narrow, I think. Well, as one of John Birch's uh, mentees who happened to uh, help put a spinal X fix on, I can tell you that frames are not good for everything. <laughs> and I love John. <laughs> That's a challenging patient population. Well, Deborah, this, uh, this has been such a joy, and I really have, have had, had a blast talking to you. And, and like I said, you are on a list of people I really wanted to, to um, have on the podcast. So thank you so much. I know that you'll be at IPOS. Of course. That's, it. that's, it. that's an always. And I hope that I can uh, coerce you into coming to Nashville next year for Pazda. Oh, I, I, yeah, I sincerely hope so. Yeah. You can, uh, you can get some honky tonking and, uh, and, and get your dancing boots on for, for Broadway, which will be like two streets over from the hotel. So it's going to be a lot oh, of fun. Oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I've never been. So I'm really looking forward to that, Nick. Yeah. So thank you very much. And flattery gets you everywhere. And I've watched your career with uh, great interest. So don't think you go unnoticed either. So. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I've enjoyed this. And um, again, I appreciate you making the time. I know it's a little bit later over there than it is here. So thank you. Thank you so much, Nick.